Welcome to Women Positively Aging, the podcast for women in midlife who want to live well for longer. I'm your host, Barbara Bray. I'm a PhD researcher in healthy aging diets at Queen's University Belfast in Northern Ireland, part of the UK. I'm passionate about living well for long days, woven into my research. And the reason I set up this podcast was to help people who are in midlife realize that there are things that we can do to improve the quality of our health as we age. Some of it is to do with genetics, some of it's to do with the environment, but there's some good news there about our lifestyle choices and behaviours, things that we can do just to inch closer to having a healthier lifestyle once you take away some of the wider environmental and genetic factors. Season two of this podcast builds on season one, where we'll be looking at specific areas such as bone health and weight management, things that have been bothering women probably didn't want to talk about them or didn't know the right source of information to look for. I invite experts, but also people with lived experience to share their experiences and tell their stories that you can learn from them as well. I do look forward to getting new listeners to the podcast and engaging with you either on social media or sending me messages on my website. And please do subscribe to the podcast so you get to find out when new episodes are released. Thank you very much and enjoy the podcast. Menopause is a period of transition that can affect women in a range of different ways. The way in which we respond to changes can have a lasting impact on the quality of our health. And in today's episode, we discuss how the food we eat can help us to live well through menopause and beyond. I'm here with Dr. Laura Wyness and Lynn Burns, registered nutritionists. Laura is an award-winning nutritionist who specialises in nutrition writing, workplace wellness and nutrition communications. She studied public health and nutrition at the University of Aberdeen and now with over 15 years experience working in food innovation and academic research, she loves reviewing the scientific evidence and translating it into clear messages. Lynn is a registered nutritionist with many years experience in public health nutrition and recipe analysis. Having gained many years' experience working in various nutrition positions within the UK civil service, she now works independently, writing, delivering courses and developing recipes. Lynn and Laura have published their new book, Eating Well for Menopause, and are here to tell us all about it. Welcome, Lynn and Laura. Hello. Hello. How are you? Good. I'm so excited to have you with me today. I love this book. And what I'd like to do is really kick off by finding out how come you arrived at this book? How did you identify the need for a book on eating well for menopause? Well, I think women were asking a lot of questions for a start um, about uh, what they should eat um, coming up to menopause if they were experiencing symptoms, you know, is there anything that they can eat more of or less of to help manage the symptoms, the variety of symptoms that they were having? So we were both as nutritionists getting a lot of questions. Um, and it's those questions that women were asking that kind of led us to write in this book. Yes, women were wanting to know about the science and um, understand more of what was going on with their bodies, but also the practical side of things. So yeah, it, people eat foods, not nutrients. So you know, it comes down to what can I cook? What should I be buying when I go to the supermarket? Um, so we wanted to give practical advice um, to women as well as help explain what's going on in their bodies and how nutrition and diet can possibly help um, with that. 
It's great that you've done that, though, because just reading through it, it's so informative and helpful from the tips about health, but also about what not to do. And then, of course, the recipes. And Lynn, how did you get involved then? Well, it's been a long and winding road, really, to the, to the point of the book writing. Um, Laura reached out to me as, a, as, a, as another freelance nutritionist just to kind of have a uh, yeah, have a chat, whatever. So we we started a bit of a trend. We we met for 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 a coffee via Zoom before the world was doing that, and, and then we just started to help each other out with with bits and pieces, and and we wrote a little pamphlet that we 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 did for charity for for cancer and um, uh, people suffering from cancer to eat better, which was the model for the original menopause leaflet, which was going to just be a sh- short leaflet. Um, uh, that we could use in conjunction with our own clients and and then oh no actually this is this is something we could put out on on a and and sell as a a digital download and it's just it's just slowly grown and grown it's been a lovely project um and we've learned so much um it's uh, and then we were given the confidence to go turn it into a real book with some conversations with some people and 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 i can't quite believe we're here now with the book is ready to go. So it's been an exciting journey. I'm really glad you did. And what I'd like to do now is dive in to those core areas that are covered by the book. So if you could chat through some of the, the areas that you cover in the book, please. I think the book hopefully covers a lot of, of things that women are asking, all the main questions and concerns women have around menopause. It, it talks about both the symptoms and effects of menopause on a woman's body, um, on their uh, heart, on their bones, on their weight, and their sleep and mental health. And also, it talks about how diet can help alleviate some of the symptoms. And there are a wide range of symptoms, let's face it, for menopause. Um, But even for those women who don't suffer any symptoms, considering your diet is really important um, because your health risk of uh, bone health and heart health changes after menopause. So considering uh, what uh, or how diet can support your bones and heart um, is really important as well. And we also cover some of the maybe lesser known impacts of menopause on health. So the impacts of hydration on and, and bladder health mm-hmm. and also how uh, menopause can affect body image. Mm-hmm. And that includes changes to body shape and hair and skin and eyes. Um, and of course, all the the myths and marketing messages. So we kind of explore some of those and kind of separate the the fact from the fiction in, in terms of those messages. One of the things I think we've noticed um, in this journey, because we, we started talking about this before Davina McCall and, and everything became much more mainstream. And it's been wonderful to see menopause getting talked about more and, and we're seeing it being talked about more within the workplace and everything. But as that's really positive. But the, the, the other side of that is there's an awful lot more information for women to process. We are being bombarded with an awful lot of, of, of information. And so by taking each major concern or question area and looking at those things individually, it, it allows us also to kind of give women better understanding to be able to make empowered choices about how they want to look after themselves and that's a really important part too to help navigate through all that information because there's so much particularly around diet uh, particularly about weight management particularly about you know 
skin and hair because that's the things that people mm-hmm. sell to, to to women and so that's that's important for us that empowered choice about what to eat is is really important oh that's great so it's going to be really helpful to a lot of women and there's a couple of things I wanted to go through actually I wanted to talk about hot flushes and and sleep issues now I haven't covered hot flushes at all in any of my podcasts we did cover sleep recently but I do want to get your view particularly from menopause on both of those two topics if you'd care to explain a bit more well, hot flushes, yeah, it's one of the most common symptoms uh, that menopausal women experience. About 80% of women experience hot flushes to some degree that vary in, in severity, intensity and frequency. Um, it's not fully understood how hot flushes or why they occur, but it's thought to be due to the drop in estrogen that impacts the hypothalamus in the brain. So that's basically the, the part of the brain that regulates the body's temperature. It's a thermostat. Um, so that goes a bit wonky, basically. And your body thinks it's overheating even when it's not. So what happens is your your blood vessels near the skin surface begin to dilate and um, that increases blood flow just underneath the skin surface to then kind of get rid of the body's supposed heat. Um, you might start sweating. Um, and so a hot flush might be followed by a, a chill afterwards. Um, and they usually last just for a few minutes, but obviously they can be really intense and often very inconvenient and impact your your daily life. Um, but in terms of diet, there are some foods that may turn up the heat and, and um, trigger hot flushes. And there's some foods that potentially can help alleviate them. Um, so certainly I find it really interesting that the trigger foods um, include things like the obvious ones, maybe the, the spicy foods, caffeine, alcohol, um, but also cheese as well was quite a surprising one for me. I, I don't know if you've ever had a cheese sweat or <laughs> a cheese headache after eating a lot of cheese, um, but it's a kind of a phenomenon that happens because cheese has some compounds in it that act a little bit similar to adrenaline Mm -hmm. and so in menopause that can be amplified and it can potentially trigger hot flushes everyone's individual so um it it varies uh according to what triggers uh yeah what trigger foods are but those are some of the common ones Mm um but it's useful to keep a food diary actually just if you are having hot flushes just to kind of look back at your diary and see what foods and drinks you were having the few hours before you had a hot flush to see if there is any pattern or any kind of potential foods that might be triggering them. Um, and then, of course, foods that might help turn down the heat. Um, so soya foods are one potential that might help. So um, soya is very rich in phytoestrogens. These are kind of plant compounds similar to estrogen. And they seem to help dampen the effect of the drop in estrogen on the hypothalamus part of the brain. So um, potentially including some soya foods uh, each day, the evidence shows that if you include two servings of soya a day spaced out across the day, um, you might find a reduction in your hot flushes. It can take up to several weeks Mm -hmm. to have an impact. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you have soya yogurt or milk, alternative for your breakfast and maybe some edamame beans at lunchtime or um, some tofu or soya mints for your dinner uh, that might help um, with the hot flushes. 
That's a good one, actually. It reminds me of my 50th birthday. My sisters and I went out to eat and we had all the foods that trigger the flushes and the poor waitress kept coming along saying, should I turn the heat down? We're like, no, it's temporary, it'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, you have to learn to manage it, don't you? Yeah, that's that's true. Um, I think the soya soya foods is the one thing that people uh, react to like, Oh, I don't know. I like soya. Oh, I'm not gonna. Oh no. And and we that was one of the reasons we included some of the recipes in in the in the book because people don't really know the good ways of including including them. And and actually, they can be really delicious and and quite easy to easy to add in. So um, yeah, it's and that's quite a surprise for people. I think that that they because the phytoe the isoflavones they. They bind weakly to some of the estrogen binding sites in our body, um, and so I think some people are a bit nervous about phytoestrogens because they think that because it's an estrogen that it's going to maybe increase the risk of cancer or be a problem food or whatever. And actually, the evidence shows that um, soya, as found in foods, is no risk. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't have any adverse effects if you're at a high risk of breast cancer, or if you um, have had it already, or if you're, you're or if you're actually going through it at the at, at the moment. All the major health authorities and, and cancer charities are saying that no, it's it's safe to do so because it doesn't act in the same way as human estrogen, so it's not affecting the estrogen levels in your body. So that's a big myth as well that we've we've tackled too because. Uh, um, it's 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 safe to do so in fact there may be some evidence to say that it might protect us from breast cancer so that's that's uh, an interesting thing to, uh, for people to be aware of and, and heart health as well actually true um for, for soya um that they it's got a protective effect on uh heart it's the protein found in soya foods um is heart healthy so yeah it's a good all round and food an, and additionally to that because it's such a good protein swap so if you're swapping um some of your red meat with soya um you're also reducing your saturated fat because it's a low saturated this the, the fats in soya are, are low in saturate so you're kind of um helping to replace some some of, of some of the less good things for your heart health you don't have to make a complete swap because you could add you could replace some of the mints in a in a shepherd's pie with some soya replacement mm-hmm. you don't have to it doesn't have to be a complete swap but that's another positive thing about soya too and that's what i like about the recipes because it gives you those new ideas and the recipes are familiar it's not like there's things you've never even seen before <laughs> it's nice mm-hmm. where you've got like fritters and you know shepherd's pie and things like that that you can adapt and use so that's really good and just going back onto the the core topics again so sleep was the one of the other ones that you've covered a lot so we talk a bit more about sleep and what you're recommending i think so many women say that sleep is a big problem for them and that it's their sleep has, patterns have changed um, as they've gone into the perimenopause and and sleep one of the things that i find so intriguing about looking at menopause is the interconnectedness of all things because if we talk about sleep and how sleep affects your heart health and you talk about sleep how it might affect your your mood it, things are connected so much so by by looking at, at at sleep we're also if we can help sleep better then we can help other aspects of of health related to menopause but some of the symptoms also interfere with sleep so if we can help improve our, uh, our hot flushes and our night sweats then we're going to improve sleep if we look at bladder issues we can improve 
sleep. So um, one of the things that I find really um, important interesting as well as the whole gut health aspect because if we if we look at the gut we we know that serotonin which is so important in producing melatonin um, means that if we can improve our gut health we we can help alleviate the 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 drop in potency that we experience when estrogen drops so estrogen has a has a, an effect on the potency of serotonin serotonin is needed for melatonin which affects our sleep so if we can improve our gut health then we may also be able to help our sleep so this this interconnected thing is so so important and, and there's so many menopausal symptoms i think that can impact how well you sleep from um, anxiety um, night sweats obviously disrupting sleep getting up to go to the toilet in the night and restless legs syndrome which is um, maybe a lesser known symptom but something that i'm certainly very interested in because I've experienced it myself, but it's this horrible sensation you get underneath your skin of a crawling or kind of itchiness. And it's far more common in women than men and much more common amongst menopausal women. We don't really know how many, but it's, I thought maybe about 15% of adult women experience this restless leg syndrome. Um, and there may be a, a link with nutrition, um, possibly magnesium, possibly iron levels, possibly vitamin D levels. So it might be worth checking your levels of these or focusing in on are you getting foods that will help you get um, these nutrients. But yeah, it, it's something that's is fairly common amongst menopausal women, this restless legs, which obviously you have to move your legs or your arms to get temporary relief from this horrible tickling sensation. So obviously it's going to disrupt sleep because it tends to happen in an evening or overnight. The, the symptoms tend to come on. So yeah, lots of menopausal symptoms can impact sleep quality. And then poor sleep raises blood pressure. So it's affecting your heart health. So it sort of goes around in this in this in this circle, and the bladder thing, you know, we see, we see, and this affects both men and women. We're more likely to get up during the night to, to empty our bladder, but the difference between men and women is quite marked. So there, there does seem to be a, a real link with with menopause in in that um, getting up to go to to the bathroom, and if you get up more than twice in a night. There is a name for it because it does impact your sleep so badly. So nocturia is getting up multiple times to empty your bladder. It has a ne such a negative effect on sleep. So, and we think that it's uh, our sleep-wake cycle starts to, to dip. Melatonin seems to be connected to our bladder function so that we don't get up during the night. But as that weakens, it doesn't work so well. But because estrogen is affecting the the melatonin effects of melatonin it seems even more marked and so then we find ourselves not drinking so well to stop ourselves from getting up during the night and then that's again having a negative effect so it's that interconnected thing of all of these symptoms which is quite fascinating how fascinating is probably not the way i'd have described having to get up several times in the night but the reality of it isn't fascinating it's really annoying but but yeah the, the science how everything's all connected is very fascinating Oh, it definitely is. It's great to hear the kind of other side of, of um, what's going on and understanding that there are people out there who are looking at this and seeing how they can find solutions and, yeah. and give people the right advice as well. Because like you say, there's opportunities to find the wrong advice. And what we want to do here is 
point people and signpost them to the right advice, which brings me nicely on to the topic of the Mediterranean diet, which has been a steady feature in my podcast episodes, it has to be said. So the last one on depression, anxiety and ageing well, Mediterranean diet featured in there. And I did want to talk about how we can break that down and make it more accessible, because I think there's this myth that it's this, you know, lots of shopping and fresh foods and things that are really inaccessible. And I know that that's not what you're saying. So I would like you to put that out there and help people understand how they can make it accessible to them. I think one of the things about the name, this Mediterranean style eating, and, and yes, that comes from where all the studies have been done in that Mediterranean area. But it's the it's the principles of the way of eating that are the thing we need to focus on. So, uh, and, and it, it doesn't have to be Mediterranean style foods. It doesn't have to be olive oil. It can be rapeseed oil. Or it doesn't have to be kind of ripe tomatoes from the market. It can be canned tomatoes is, is, is fine. And if you go around the world where there is long, healthy life, so we look at Japan or, or, or other places, those same kind of principles are there. So it, it's not about the... And we can create this Mediterranean style eating with foods from all around the world and we can have dried and frozen and canned. It doesn't matter that that it's it's this it's the pattern that's really important. And that pattern is reflected in the eat well plate, which is maybe less. It doesn't imply this kind of fresh everything um, and expensive in quite the same way as maybe the Mediterranean diet sounds. But the, the core principles, this choosing a healthy mix of fats, so having using oils rather than fats for cooking and for in, on salads and things and plant-based foods is the kind of core of, of, the, of the diet. And then moderate amounts of meat and fish and dairy, or something, meat and dairy, so that bringing in that variety is really important. And I think definitely we, we need to encourage more um kind of plant-based eating, more beans and pulses and fruits and vegetables, because we know from um, survey data that we're just not having enough fiber in our diet. And we know that that is so important for gut health and that has uh, an impact in so many aspects of our overall health. So um, I think in in Scotland, only 5% of women meet the 30 grams a day of fiber recommendation. Um, so we have a long way to go. And and even fruit and veg, we kind of all know we should be eating at least five portions of fruit and veg a day. But I think it's around one in five adults currently achieve wow. that in the UK. So definitely more fruits and veg, plant-focused diet um, to get that fibre-rich foods for our gut microbiome and the diversity, whether it's, as Lynn was saying, fresh, dried, canned, you know, frozen, it's all the same, different colours, eat the rainbow and get that variety in. Um, and don't forget the herbs and spices either because they also count for plant diversity. They've got, they're so rich in polyphenols, um, which is great for our gut microbiome. So, yeah, lots of diversity. And then they add so much flavour too. So by adding so much extra flavour, you can turn down the amount of salt that you need. So that's helping your heart health as well. So it's just so many benefits for the, the kind of plant-based eating, Mediterranean style of eating for our, our health and particularly for menopausal symptoms or thinking about health around menopause um, from you know, uh, sleep, as Lynn mentioned, and mood and mental health and heart health and weight management. There's all these things that um, that way of eating can be really beneficial for. 
I think it's good to focus on that, and particularly at a time when you might have been eating the same way for years and years and years, and all of a sudden you feel like you need to eat differently. And it's good to know, it's almost like you've given yourself permission to explore and experiment and try new things because all of this positive messaging is coming through. And I can understand though, when you look around the supermarket, sometimes you just, there's so much there, you don't know where to start. And that's why I like this book because it, it's like a little toolkit, isn't it? It's saying, this is where you need to go in the supermarket market aisle. These are the types of things you need to be putting in your basket. And these are the types of foods you want to be adding to your your repertoire. And I think I've seen a statistic, something like most of us rotate the same six meals around every week. <laughs> you know, it's nice to know you can add to that repertoire and not break the bank. It's about simple foods, but colourful and helpful to your diet. And, and sometimes, even if you're finding it hard to get out of that six meal cycle, just by having a thing of like, okay, so I'm making shepherd's pie again. Oh, but I could add some lentils into my sauce and it made my shepherd's pie a little bit better. I think we don't have to necessarily always change everything. We can, I will, instead of just having peas with my with my shepherd's pie, I could have peas and carrots and that's an extra plant. <laughs> and and, and it, yeah. it, sounds, it sounds so silly, but those things can make a difference and they're really, really easy. If you can just make one, every time you make a choice, can I do one small thing that's better? You can aggregate all that, all those little things and they make a, can make a big difference without being overwhelming or without being um, prohibitive because it can hold you back to think that I have to change everything I do. But if, if those little things can add up, it's positive. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. It's given me a lot of encouragement and a bit more inspiration as well to go back to the recipe book. And I'd like to turn to hydration now. We touched on it briefly where Laura mentioned alcohol earlier. But if you could talk more about hydration and how we need to frame it really once we get to this life stage, that would be great. Well, I think, well, hydration, we sometimes kind of forget to talk about it when we talk about nutrition, but hydration is so important for our health and it's so important for how we feel. So, uh, in, and if you if you look at that at, at menopausal life stage, some of those effects of being slightly dehydrated actually match some of the menopausal symptoms. So if we think about, you, know, you don't have to be very dehydrated for it to start to affect your clarity of thought. So if you imagine if you're experiencing a bit of brain fog and then you're dehydrated as well, they it, it exacerbates things. So hydration is really important for for just feeling feeling well and navigating menopausal symptoms. But one thing that really stands out for me is that our bladder habits change. And we tend to, we've already spoken about getting up in the night to empty our bladder more than once or whatever. And that's that affects our sleep too. So what can happen either consciously or subconsciously is like I'll drink a bit less in the evening so I don't get up during the night. And that can help. But what we don't then tend to do is make up for that reduction in fluid intake. And it's not just necessarily during the night that we might be needing to go to use the bathroom more often. We see that a lot of women have either a little stress incontinence, and that might be to do with having children. Um, estrogen affects our pelvic floor, so it slackens a little as we, as, as, as we go through a menopause, and that affects our bladder function. The changes to our whole kind of... So talking about vaginal atrophy and things like that, that affects that area of our body and makes us more prone to um, irritation to our urethra and more prone to um, uh, urinary tract infections. So we can 
have increased frequency or we can have have maybe we don't go more often but maybe when we need to go we need to go now and have that urgency and it's I think we could easily think of it as being a bit of an inconvenience and it's just part of getting older as a woman and it isn't and I think if you listen to there's a wonderful physiotherapist called Elaine Miller she's a woman's physiotherapist and she says she's really trying to advocate that women go and talk about this to their doctors because if menopause was taboo, urinary incontinence is even more so um, and people just manage it and it's okay to manage it, but it will only get worse. And we think that it doesn't affect our health, but actually um, if you're suffering from incontinence at any, at any level it can reduce how much you exercise it can reduce how much you socialize it can reduces your sleep so all of those things can be affecting your heart health can be affecting your bone health and what strikes me what struck me an awful lot when I heard Elaine Miller speaking to uh, on, on this she's, uh, is that it's urinary incontinence is one of the, is the second reason why women go into residential care or lose their independence because very often women are rushing to the toilet when they fall and they break a hip. So while we're in our young menopausal years and we're in our 50s, we, we can manage, but as we get older, and when we're talking about me- eating for menopause, we're not just talking about transition. We're talking about looking forward, just as you are with your, with your, with your podcast. It's aging positively. So it's the effects later on in our life that are important too. So by tackling and, and thinking about our bladder problems and, and our hydration, we can we can do an awful lot to improve our health later on in life. That's a really important point. And I've only had one experience of having to go to um, a, phys- a physiotherapist who specialises in bladder health after having a hysterectomy. I didn't know those people existed. And it's a thankless task, to be honest. They do a, a sterling job. You know, it's not easy to get people to practice their pelvic floor and do all those types of things. And it's not easy as a patient to go. You sort of roll your eyes and go, here we go. But they are incredibly effective. So I can't recommend them highly enough, even though at the time that you're having the appointment, you're just like, why am I here? I don't like this at all. But the benefit that you get from going is incredible. I think they're, they're very important people in the health service. And I hadn't realised that so many women had this as a problem going into older age. And I totally get that whole piece around fragility, being unsteady on your feet, rushing to the toilet and how that can not end well. So it's good that you've highlighted and that. And one of the things that Elaine Miller had said was it can take the, it takes an average of seven years for women to go and speak to a doctor about it. And so it might be something that maybe started after they had a child. Oh, it's just going to go. It's just because I've just had a baby or whatever. And, and it, it takes a long time before they, they go and ask for help about it. So so one of the things, you know, I, I had issues with my bladder years ago because I had a bladder condition. And I, I so identified with what Lane was saying I had a, a diagnosed condition, so it was much easier for me then to, to talk about it and, and do things differently. But I can really see how it, it reduces your, you're not going to go to a Zumba class or go jogging if you are afraid you might have a leak. You just, you, you, you don't. That's so true, and, actually. And, and you're not gonna... <laughs> can I just tell you this funny story, though? I'm known as the auntie that will go on the trampoline. So like I'm saying, going and doing those physiotherapy and those exercises is important if you want to play with kids. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, and it's things like, oh, well, you know, I, oh, I really like those independent shops down the far end of town. I'll go and get my, I'll go and get some things from there. And then you go, oh, but there's no toilets up there. So I'm going to walk all the way there and then, and then walk all the way back 
I'll just go to the supermarket where I can drive and I can use the toilet in the supermarket. So it affects what you do and, and that and, and the quality of life is really important. And then people do limit what they're drinking. And the problem with that is actually you're then exacerbating your bladder problem because the, the less you drink, the stronger your urine, the more irritated your bladder gets, and then your urgency gets worse. And then you end up in this cycle and and you don't realize that that's what's happening. And so, you know, if you are in that position, then keep a bladder diary, note down your frequency, but also note down whether there was urgency, note down if there was pain, note down if there's ever any blood in your urine, you've got to note that down, go to your doctor with the diary, and then you can have a really good conversation. There's so many things that can be done, because it's not just about a, a physiotherapist, it's also, there's also medications for urgency and overactive bladder, and there's all, you know, we do not have to live with that and yet it is just assumed that we know well bladders that's what happens when you get older it it doesn't have to be like that so uh, I'm quite passionate about that. that subject. <laughs> you are passionate. So am I, actually. It's great to meet somebody who's just as passionate as I am. So thank you very much for that. So that brings our, our discussion to a close, really. And I'd like to finish with your, your top three take-homes for this from this podcast. And then we'll remind everybody of the date that the book comes out as well. So if I go to, to Laura for the, the top three, perhaps... Um, I would say, first of all, give soya a chance. <laughs> so if you have tried soya in the past and thought, oh, God, that's that's tasteless. I'm not ever having that again. Try it again. And, you know, because it can be really useful potentially for hot flushes and for heart health. And it's a good quality protein, which is so important as, as we get older as well to have a good quality protein. And then, Lynn, another one, please. Another take home thinking about your plant foods and the diversity of your plant foods. So how can you add different plant foods? Get creative with the plants. It's my message. Thank you. And back to Laura for the last one. I would have to say it sounds really simple, but hydration. Um, keep thinking about are you keeping well hydrated? Um, so think about are you having enough? What's the colour of your pea? You know, is it a light straw colour, clear? Are you avoiding you know, having water because of bladder issues. Um, it sounds really simple, but often it's something that a lot of us don't do that well. So focus on hydration. Thank you very much for your top take homes. And of course, people will be able to access all of this information from the book. Do you have a date of publication? We, we think it's it's going to be early June, shall early we say. June. Let's go with that. So as this podcast is released, the book should be, fingers crossed, available. So I'd like to thank you both, Lynn and Laura, for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure to host, and I'm really looking forward to thousands of women being able to access your book and get the information in a lot more detail. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thanks for the yeah, invite. Thanks so much for having us. It's been wonderful. You're um, Feel a bit starstruck, your podcast is amazing. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Women Positively Aging. If you like what you've heard, please do click subscribe and you'll be notified of when the next episode lands on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and all the usual podcast players. Don't hesitate to contact me if you're also interested in hearing more about my healthy aging diet research. I'd love to work with businesses who are developing food products and looking at how they can improve them and target them towards people's needs as they age, but also organisations that want to help their employees who are in midlife improve the quality of their diets and inevitably how they will age and live well for longer. Thank you for listening and I look forward to having you on again when I have the next episode. 
Take care and stay well. Monkey Pants Productions Podcast.